Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property. I'm Peter Switzer. Well, we all would love to know what is and what is bound to happen with property prices. So tonight I've asked arguably the most qualified property player in the market. There is no one at the coalface of Australian property more than Tom Panos, who I call Mr. Property. Tom shares the indicators he looks at to work out if the market is on the way up or on the way down. Then I get an economist view on where house prices are going with AMP Capital's Diana Mussina. And I finish off with Paul Mialotis of M Square Capital, who shares what he's seeing in the non-bank lending space. That's the show, so let's kick off now with Mr. Property, Tom Panos. I'm interviewing Tom Panos, and Tom Panos Tom Panos is a very interesting property guy. Like, no one gets called this in this country, but I'm going to call, it, call him this. I reckon Tom Panos is Mr. Property. Welcome to the program, Mr. Property. Woohoo, that's good. Hearing it from you, Peter. That's all good. <laughs> hey, listen, ever since I left you, when you were my uni lecturer, let's be very clear. I did a Bachelor of Commerce, Bachelor of, uh, uh, of Business, and everything I've done has been economics, but I went into real estate from day one. Mm. I never, I was the most overqualified real estate agent 35 years ago, and I haven't left real estate, so yeah. real estate's it. But, but as Edward Devono pointed out to me many years ago, that you need to have a competitive edge. The people who think outside the square end up with a competitive edge, and that's what you've got, Tom Panos. You're no ordinary real estate agent, are you? Well, people would people would say that I don't fit the fit the model of what a real estate person uh, should have been. I mean, firstly, from the education I had, there was nothing to say real estate would have been in. Mm. And then you turn around. I spent a lot of time working for the Murdochs, mm. and I've still got a contract with uh, with uh, News Corp and Real Estate um, and I'm still in that family, if you if you want to call it. Um, but, um, you know, I run an auction business. I, you know, I, I have the largest, uh, uh, um, Peter, I have the largest, I train more people in real estate than you would have in any of the other bodies that exist. You know, I've got thousands of members in a subscription-based business called Real Estate Gym. I do a lot of auctions um, every Saturday. And, um, yeah. Okay. So, so, how did you get your association with realestate.com? Um, it was through News Corp because News Corp, it's a News Corp company, if you know what I yes. mean. Um, so it was very simple. I was working as a real estate educator and I was training a lot of the real estate agents um, for the Rain and Horn Network. Um, and Peter, what happened? is the owner of a newspaper, which I believe is the paper that serviced your area called the Wentworth Courier. Yeah. His name was Michael Hannon. Yeah, I know Michael well. Okay, so Michael Hannon paid an executive recruiter to come and approach me and say, would I like to work for the Hannon family? And the reason why is I would train real estate agents to sell marketing. And I was obsessed with the Wentworth Courier. I was obsessed with local papers. And um, the, at the time, the Rain and Horn office in the eastern suburbs was run by Michael Pallier, uh, Martin Maskin, Barry Goldman, 
very successful office. Mm. It was doing 80 pages in the Wentworth Courier. Mm. Peter, a page in the Wentworth Courier for real estate was $4,000. Mm. So what Michael Hannon thought is, if this guy's got the ability to do that, what if I actually had him working in my organization out there talking to all the agents? And it was a strategy that worked, mm. uh, very closely became aligned to John McGrath. John started uh, dominating in print. And before you know it, it's a, it's a classic case of you sign one office, then you go to the next one one month later and say, look at how good they're doing. Mm. And then they end up spending and then you go to the next one. So before you know it, I had the Wentworth Courier doing four, three, four hundred pages a week in real estate sometimes. So were people then reducing their advertising in the Sydney Morning Herald, which would have been the, the big rival to the Wentworth Courier? Exactly right. So what happened? So you know your real estate. So what happened is on Saturday, when you got the, uh, the real estate section of the Sydney Morning Herald, it was that it was thick. Mm. I mean, picking up that whole paper. So what the plan was is take the revenue out of the Saturday papers and move them into big coloured displays in the, the midweeks. Mm. Because, uh, Peter, the, um, the equivalent News Corp product was called the Telegraph. And Telegraph readership wasn't high in the eastern suburbs, but Wentworth Courier readership was high in the eastern suburbs. So it was swing the money there. And I did that. And then I did that for, I pretty much did it for the rest of the country. So I got a job. Uh, ultimately what happened, Peter, is in 2007, uh, Michael Hannon approached me. Uh, uh, he'd been very, by the way, he'd been very kind to me. I had cancer during, um, during my time at uh, Michael Hannon, the, the three or four years I was there. And he was very good to me. And he actually said, Tom, um, I'm doing a deal with News Corp. Um, real estate's a big part of it. Um, you need to sort of move over to News Corp as part of the deal. And I did. And I went over to News Corp. So to answer your question, that is how the relationship with realestate.com began. I became the, the head of real estate for the News Corp. Okay. So, so what are the, the big, reliable indicators you look at to try and work out, for example, where the property market's going right now? Okay. Um, property sold prior to auction. I look at that metric. And the reason I look at that metric is that if I see a high number of properties being sold prior to auction, it says to me, they're running out of buyers because they've only got one buyer. So what happens is the agent will ring up the buyer a few days before the auction and say, listen, our owners are hoping to do a deal before the auction. Circumstances mean that they want to do a deal before the auction. And that says to me, Bill, that they don't expect to have three or four people bidding on the day. Yeah. So when I look at sold priors, it says to me, things are slowing up. So I look at the sole price. Um, I look at the clearance rate without the properties that are withdrawn. I want, you know, because the problem with clearance rates is that, you know what, here's, here's a problem. If a property doesn't sell, Phil. Look, so, so, so Peter, I'll get you, on Saturday afternoon, you've got RP data, you've got price finder, you got all the data companies ringing around and they're calling real estate agents. If an agent hasn't sold that property, they're inclined not to answer the phone call, <laughs> right? 
because they don't want to have a property in the Sunday press saying not sold. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sure does. So what you've got is a sample size by Sunday, Peter, that is not completely accurate because it's not including the properties that is called um, uh, uh, not recorded, right? So I think if you're going to get a better accurate clearance rate, the one I look at is on the Tuesday or Wednesday when it's been updated because it's actually included that data. They've got around to it by then. So I do look at a clearance rate, but I don't look at the Sunday paper clearance rate because that's distorted. Okay, so what are you seeing with those two indicators right now to tell us what the, the property market is like right now? Okay, first home buyers is strong. No question about it. I think it's cheaper to own than to rent. Um, at 2.5% interest rates, even though rents have come down, I'm seeing first home buyers and I'm particularly seeing it even in the last seven days, first home buyer inquiries have gone off the charts because of the stamp duty, no stamp duty under a million bucks or under 800. That's in New South Wales, right? South Wales. Um, the other things I'm seeing is the high end. High end real estate is strong. And what I mean is houses like yours, Peter, in the neighbourhoods that you live in, right? Uh, they're very strong. And the reason why is if you think about it, if you're a property person and you're concerned at the moment about the various asset classes, you wouldn't be touching office space right now with what's going on. So a lot of the high end is you've got a lot of people that are expats that are saying Australia's safe. They look like there's no chaos there. I'll buy in Australia. So that's one reason. The other reason is the capital gains tax-free benefit that you get in real estate. So you buy a property for 10 million, um, you sell it for 15, right? You've made $5 million tax-free. That's a big benefit in the total return of investment. So that high end is good. Um, properties that I think are being punished at the moment are ones that have got an attribute that doesn't make them attractive. So when the market starts having a few cracks to it, Peter, the ones that cop it are the ones that have got a cross against them. And a cross could be, I'll give you an example. On Saturday, a property in Croydon near PLC, where my daughters go, this property should have sold, but we struggled to sell it. And in the end, it got passed in. Why? Next door was a boarding house that had, it was, it was, it was called a supervised boarding house with people that were, um, uh, had uh, mental health issues. So what happens is when the market's booming, buyers don't care that much. Oh, right, there's a boarding house there, we can live with it. But when the market's nervous, or when there's a few small cracks there, this property, the buyer that was the highest bidder there said, Tom, I've got to be honest with you. I don't feel comfortable knowing that next door I could have an issue. Mm. And I said, oh, but it's supervised. So properties like that, busy row, problem, right? Um, telegraph pole that, you know, has got, you know, a certain uh, electricity that could cr create radiation on the question mark. Um, um, 
um, things of those, anything that's got a small cross to it gets punished. Okay, so given the, the, the collection of information that's coming in right now, just give us like, where, where do you think prices are going now? Are they on the way down at a, at a small pace or a big pace? And where do you think we're gonna be by the spring sales? If, there, if there's no improvement in infections and maybe New South Wales has to go down the same path as Victoria? Look, Peter, I auction every Saturday and I'm giving you a view from me across Sydney. I have not seen a correction. I've seen um, some properties sell for 800 where I thought, well, they could have got 820. Um, but I haven't seen things that, that should have gone 820 go 750. And I've noticed the tone in the last week talking to real estate agents, because that's what I do um, most of my days every week. There is no shortage of buyers. There's a shortage of sellers. People aren't coming to the market. So the fact that JobKeeper has now been delayed I can only see the marketplace moving along pretty good. I agree with what you said on, on a segment you did for me last week. There doesn't appear to be a September cliff um, at all, Peter. Um, the, only, the only concern I'm having at the moment is the real estate industry in Victoria yeah. appears to have slowed up because vendors don't want to come onto the market. I mean, some vendors don't want to have an agent to come into their house and even look and value their property at the moment, you know? Mm -hmm. So you're going to have a problem there with supply. There's the, it seems to have come to a bit of a pause there. Yeah, so just take Victoria. Let's assume Victoria's gone back to where it was during the first lockdown. When that lockdown was over, what happened to uh, vendor interest and buyer interest in Victoria? Um, it got, uh, it was very strong, okay. very strong. So what happened is most of the real estate agents had record June and July's. Now what's happened in Victoria is two weeks ago, we saw that slow down, but most of the agents in Victoria had incredible months in June because what it was is that, that, that supply that never changed hands in March and April took place afterwards. So what happens is the lag catches up. So I think that that's probably what's going to happen in Victoria. Okay, one last area. I'd love to talk to you about WA and Queensland because WA in particular in its isolation, I, I, I figure it's doing okay. It was doing well before the coronavirus, getting better. What, oh, well, I've got you. WA, how's it going? Best it's been for a long time best it's been for a long time. So, and having said that, let, let me tell you, we're not talking about a boom. In Western Australia, as long as it's not going down, real estate agents are happy. It has stopped going down. Mm. And the reports I've had from agents across the Perth area, so I can't report over greater Western Australia, mm. but I can report Peter in Perth. They say that they've seen increases of somewhere between two to 4%. Days on market is lower, properties are selling. And um, I've asked the, the agents there, why do you think that is? And they just feel like people are optimistic 
that Perth is away from the trouble of COVID. Okay, one last area then. We know there's an Airbnb issue. CBD apartments where Airbnb have been, has been big. Is there a, a buying opportunity for someone who thinks, well, in a year's time, we will be traveling again and these apartments will be once again chased by foreigners when they come here. Is there a, a buying opportunity for CBD apartments right now? There is, there is. Right now, that's probably the sector that has got um, a slight distress selling there, mm. you know? Mm. Um, highly, highly mortgaged people there, oversupply of property, which means that you've got a discount to sell because you're selling in competition, not in isolation. Whereas, you know, you get a nice house in Bellevue Hill or Dover Heights, it's one of a kind. You go into the city, you can look, there could be, you know, 300 apartments in, you know, one section um, of, a, of a suburb. So, yes, there is. But, you know, the real problem, of course, with uh, residential investors is uh, they don't seem to have uh, often the courage that people have in, uh, in, uh, in the share market where they factor in that there is good news coming. They factor in that there's going to be a vaccine. Mm. They factor in that business is going to return. Most residential mums and dads panic. The world's going to make catastrophize. So uh, it's very weird. Peter, in real estate, as someone that's been auctioning real estate for 30, 30 years now, when people should be buying because they've got no competition, they don't buy. They sit there at an auction and they'll say, but I'm the only one here. It mustn't be good. And then six months later, they'll be bidding against 30 other people and they'll be paying over the odds. They'll be carrying away. They would have got emotional. And um, I think people operate social proof. They do what the masses do. Tom Panos, thanks for joining us in the program. Thank you so much, Peter. That's Mr. Property. From time to time, we'd like to catch up with Diana Mussina from AMP Capital to see what she's seeing with the property market. Diana, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Peter. All right, so let's start off with your economic outlook, um, which I presume has changed because of what's going on in Victoria. Am I right? And if so, how has your economic outlook changed? I mean, Melbourne is 20% of the national economy. It's a huge chunk and the we do have Melbourne that's just in lockdown at the moment, but the issue is that it's clearly going to spread to regional Victoria, and that's what we've seen over the past day. Now in regional Victoria, there's more res res restrictions coming in place. You have to wear a mask. There's less ease of going out to eat. So at the moment, we think that the lockdown in Melbourne, which I think will be extended rather than the six weeks that was initially specified, mm. will probably take about 1% of September quarter growth. But I think it might actually end up being more like one and a half or 2%. So the risk here is that we're going to be looking at another negative quarter of growth, which means that the recession will be extended ultimately. Mm. So I've, and this is a question without notice and um, I'm not quite sure how, how smart you and Shane uh, Oliver are compared, compared to me. But, uh, but and, and maybe because you are away, you might not have thought of this, but I've never ever thought about the Australian economy in two parts, namely 
CBD economies and suburban economies. And because we still are in our office in Sydney, I know how badly the CBD economy is going because there aren't many people around compared to good old, the good old days. But on the flip side, when I drive through my suburb, the number of people lining up outside cafes, it reminds me of Sunday morning every day of the, the week. So is it possible that maybe we could be surprised by the GDP number because of what we're seeing, what I'm seeing in the suburbs as compared to the CBDs? I suppose you might get this transfer of spending hmm. uh, that kind of shifts from CBDs to regional. That's definitely possible. And, and I see the same thing around the beaches where I live, that hmm. there are people lined up at cafes and there's clearly no social distancing going on. No. But if you look at the broad economic activity indicators, which should capture the regional areas as well. Right. They're still, you know, about 20 or 30% below their pre-COVID levels. This is some of the high frequency data, like credit card spending, mobility indicators, restaurant reservations, and, and those types of things should capture any type of transfer spending that's going on. Hmm. So I think that consumer spending is still very much depressed compared to where it was before coronavirus hmm. happened. Yeah. Okay. So... So given what, what you're seeing then in terms of the economy, what is it doing to your expectations around house prices? I've been really surprised by the resilience of the housing market in Australia, actually. And I myself am actually looking to upsize at the moment. And uh, around me, uh, the, still the level of demand for housing remains exceptionally strong. And I have really been surprised by that. Hmm. The, there's a different story in rents. The rental market has taken a huge hit. Rents are down by, uh, I think, before coronavirus levels, maybe somewhere like 15 or 20 percent. Because a lot of people have also decided perhaps to move in with um, parents or to move into bigger houses rather than apartments. And the apartment market has been hit quite badly. House prices haven't been hit as much. They've been quite insulated. Prices are only down by about 1% or 2% since before coronavirus levels. And that's mainly in Sydney and Melbourne. I think what's leading this insulation in the housing market in terms of um, the, the purchase side of the market is around the bank's payment holidays where people don't have to repay their mortgages that's now been extended until the beginning of next year that allows um, perhaps some people who might have had trouble repaying their mortgage uh, that, that 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 kind of insulates them and prevents a lot of forced selling from happening so we might see some forced selling once these bank payment holidays finish up and they do eventually have to finish up at some stage because the banks are incurring a loss now at the moment. Mm. But for the time mm -hmm. being, I think prices will remain pretty insulated. But still, over the next 12 months, I think prices can fall by between 5 and 10% across Australia. Yeah. And I guess a, a pivotal moment will be if um, JobKeeper after March is discontinued. What this whole period has taught me, I think, is that when there are government mandated restrictions in place, like lockdowns or shutdowns, the government has to throw money at the problem. And that's clearly what they're doing. They're putting as much money as they think is necessary to stem the income loss from people to keep the unemployment rate from skyrocketing too far. So while JobKeeper is scheduled to finish by the end of March, I think if we're still in the situation 
where we haven't had a vaccine, where virus, where virus cases are still popping up in different parts of Australia, it will be extended again. Yeah, and you've brought up the, the, the very important V word. That vaccine, if it, if it comes, say for example, we've seen Dr. Anthony Fauci in the USA, you know, he, he seems to be a fairly measured kind of guy. He's uh, making a suggestion that there could be a vaccine by October or November. If that happened, do you think that would lead to a quite a sizable co positive confidence effect and that would then maybe even see you guys upgrade your economic growth forecasts for 2021? It would definitely lead to a confidence boost in financial markets. Anytime we see positive news around uh, a vaccine provider like AstraZeneca, Oxford University, Moderna come out with you know their mm. latest trials and um, good signs from their trials about people building antibodies. The market always tends to react very positively to that news. I think the financial markets are pricing in some chance of a vaccine by the end of this year because a lot of the experts like Fauci are saying that it is going to be possible. Mm. But what we need to see when we get if we do get this vaccine news, is how many of the of the vaccines can actually be produced over the next, you know, six to twelve months? What percentage of the population will actually be able to get this vaccine? And that will, I think, determine if we would be revising up our forecast. Mm. Uh, I, I, I think it would take a little bit of time if we were to revise any 2021 forecasts. Okay, we talked about your economic growth forecast. Um, when it comes to property prices, I've always argued that it's unemployment that is a critically important um, piece of data. Uh, a, do you agree? And B, if you do, what are your predictions for unemployment 2021? Uh, the unemployment rate is key for the housing market. That determines income that people can pay for homes. It determines whether you do get these levels of forced selling and like I said before I think that government policies can kind of insulate the housing market um, if they if they do have in place some some things that protect household incomes which is what's happening at the moment I think what's interesting with the labor market at the moment is that you get this official unemployment rate you know it's about seven and a half percent at the moment but if you include people who work zero hours um, so they're not actually working but they're probably being supported by a job keeper or if you include people who have completely left the labour force, who have been discouraged from looking for work. Uh, the effective unemployment rate, which is what Frydenberg also talks about, is just over 11%. And it's important to, to include these people in the unemployment rate statistics because without the government policies in place, those people would probably be unemployed at the moment. Mm. Uh, and this effective unemployment rate is something that we're watching quite closely. The key thing I'm worried about is if you see uh, JobKeeper potentially ending, or the lower level of JobKeeper forcing people, uh, not supporting people in their jobs anymore, or forcing them to go look for another job. You may see the unemployment rate rise from here. We think the unemployment rate will probably rise to about nine percent as you see more people re-entering the labour market from here. Those those people who initially left, we will get problems in the housing market once you see the unemployment rate get over ten percent. Well, you, you made the point that you're thinking about upsizing. Are you a buyer now or are you going to wait for a, a, a better buying opportunity? Well, this is something that me and my husband are um, debating at the moment. I think 
it really depends on first your suburb that you live in and you know future plans for family growth mm. and that sort of thing and those family situations i think are probably the most important thing you would have thought that right now would be a buyer's market but it's not really prices mm. have only fallen by one or two percent as i said generally speaking maybe in some suburbs or in apartments i think if you're looking to buy an apartment then prices have probably fallen by by more than that uh there is also some concern about what happens to rents going ahead if you're looking to rent out your place. So it, I honestly can't say whether it is a buyer's market or not. It just depends on your situation and how your other assets have been performing and where you think um, potential rental growth might be if you are looking to rent out your other investments. Well, on the subject of apartments, uh, the Airbnb effect has become fairly important. So why don't you just explain to our viewers how Airbnb is actually depressing rents and, uh, and my next question then will be if rents are being depressed you kind of think house prices should respond to that so what airbnb is doing is ultimately forcing more properties onto the market before apartments or houses that were rented out relying on tourism coming in uh, or students for example they're no longer getting that i mean migration is expected to fall by 85 percent over this next financial year it's huge before, if we were, you know, seeing international arrivals here of about 200 grand a year, they're going to fall to 30 grand. It's, it's a significant fall. It has huge implications for the housing market. So this influx of new properties into the already pretty high supply, especially of apartments on the market, has really led to this uh, disruption of rents in the short term. I, I think it's likely to continue. But as I said, I think it's the fact that prices for, for houses haven't responded yet hmm. uh, because of these bank, bank payment holidays and other government support measures that have been in place. And also now you're getting some states coming out with reducing stamp duty requirements. Of course, Home Builder as well, the government's construction package, which apparently is getting more people subscribed to it than they originally expected. There are some of these factors that are still trying to keeping prices propped up for our homes. Yeah. It seems to me if I was a, an apartment buyer, I think I'd be waiting. I'd be waiting because I think the supply of apartments may well be on the, on the uh, increase as the year goes on and JobKeeper changes start having effect. But uh, Diana, always great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the program. Thanks so much. Well, each month we like to check out with the guys who are working at the coalface in the property sector. And we're talking to um, Paul Mialotis from M Square Capital. How are you, Paul? Well, thank you, Peter. How are you? Very good, mate. Look, let's try and take different angles. And I was just thinking that there are a lot of businesses out there uh, who are doing, you know, those business owners are doing things differently than they used to before the coronavirus. Is there an example of a deal that you might have done recently which really contrasts to the way you used to do deals before the word coronavirus came into our lives? Um, look, that, that's an interesting question. Um, investors come to us because we have a view. Mm. We're pretty strong with our views and we have no issue with voicing them. Mm. So well, I'll give you an example of a live deal we have at the moment. Mm. So we have an investment opportunity to help a borrower refinance a block of units in the heart of Balmain. Okay. So there's 14 units and one retail premise, premises mm. down the bottom. In the current environment, we took a view that we won't lend any more than 50% 50, 50 of the value of that block of units. Mm. 
even though it's an, a magnificent building in the middle of Balmain, you've got harbour views, um, it's fantastic. We had a view that you know, 50% um, loan to value ratio, so we're not going to lend more than 50% of the value on the first priority basis. Right. Okay. When pre-COVID, we would have looked at 65% of that value every day of the week. So, so once upon a time, that guy would come and said, let's imagine it's worth 10 million for simple figures. Yep. So you then would have said, if it's a $10 million property, this guy could borrow 6.5 million from me. Correct. Now you're saying you're going to get 5 million. 5 million. Now in, in saying that, we did, that's the first prudent thing that we, we mm. did against the, uh, for this particular transaction. Yeah. The second um, prudent thing that we, we have a view on at M squared is that we are not we don't know where the retail and commercial businesses, how they're going to fare in the, in the short to medium term. Yeah. So while we have a third party value evaluating our, the asset, mm. they're on the panel, they've got their PI insurance. We have a property division within our business that analyzes those mm. particular assets. Mm. We went back to the valuer and said, you know what, with retail being the way retail is, mm. we'd like you to value the retail component yeah. on, a forced, on a forced sale basis. Yeah, okay. So let's say it shaded the valuation that the valuer said by a further 10%, and we adopted the forced sale value mm. as opposed to what the valuer actually said the property would be worth. Mm. And we did that for a very simple reason, that if we wanted to sell in that particular market, mm. we need to make sure that our investors are getting their capital back mm. with their interests. Mm. So if I put in simple terms, we're looking at a, a Sydney-based property in the middle of Balmain, for our investors to lose some of their capital, the mm. value would have to drop by more than 50%. Mm. Now, 50% yeah. drop so, in Sydney yeah. um, would be... Yes, we'd be talking a Great Depression, I think. Even more, more than that, I would suggest. Mm. Yeah. So, given that, um, and, and I guess it's, it's worthwhile following this example through, the person who's borrowing the money that money is not for this block that currently exists. That block is like the, the, the stake he puts up to get money for another project? No, this one's actually a refinance. So okay. if we, we, this you don't always do that. No, we don't. You, a lot of the examples you've given to us in the past was someone's got an asset, they put that up as, as capital, uh, as backing, and they go and use that money, money somewhere else, and that stuff is. That's right. Yeah. In this particular as like with M squared, we will lend for any commercial purpose, yeah. whether it's a refinance, um, whether it's to buy another property, mm. whether it's an industrial property, a commercial property, mm. maybe less so commercial in this market or residential. Yeah. Right. But this particular um, need was to refinance an existing mortgage. Mm. Um, were you feeling much more confident about? the property sector outlook before Victoria had all its infections. Uh, has that changed it, your look, it, it has crystal ball look at what's happening in your sector? We still think that in the major cities there is a little bit of downward pressure in the market in commercial and mm. we, we are a little bit more fearful of the commercial aspect, I've said multiple mm. times. Yeah. So we do think there'll be slight decreases in asset values, and that's important when, and that's why in the Balmain example, mm. at a 50%, lending 50% of the asset value, you're protected by these little shocks. Yeah. We don't think it's gonna be a catastro catastrophic decline, mm. um, but we are cautious mm. because there may be a second outbreak. We were hopeful it isn't in Sydney. Okay. All right. That's one aspect of your business. The other part is that when people invest uh, with you, 
that money can go to someone in business who then puts up their house as right. security. You therefore have to have an opinion on what's going to happen to uh, house prices and you, you kind of stick to the east coast of um, Australia. Mm -hmm. Have you formed views on properties in Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne? We've got magnificent deals in Sydney at the moment. Mm -hmm. So we do think that Sydney is where we would like to skew a lot of our opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, we do believe that Sydney um, within 20Ks or even mm -hmm. a little bit um, further out than 20Ks, as long as they're existing properties, mm -hmm. they're not specialised and it's not land, mm -hmm. we like the aspect of Sydney. Mm -hmm. Not saying we wouldn't do Melbourne and Brisbane, but the Sydney, we, we think the shock, the absorption sh of shock in Sydney, it's our view that that's where the shocks will be absorbed better than anywhere else. Mm. And you'll see a lot of our opportunities now are Sydney-based purely because um, we do believe the, the opportunity to be getting a good return with the safer asset is in Sydney. Okay, you mentioned um, in, you know, relative concerns about retail. What parts of the property sector are you feeling comfortable about? When there's a residential aspect, um, we, we like it more than we do commercial. Industrial style properties, um, we like, we yeah. still like. We do feel that manufacturing um, will be on the up. We do feel people need to store goods. We, mm. So we do like industrial. And not saying we don't, um, we dislike commercial. We may just change the parameters, what we're lending against a commercial asset. We might lend them less. We might um, take a little bit um, more collateral. Mm. Um, we might have other covenants which will just allow us to monitor the investment a little bit more than, than you probably would mm. normally. Are you benefiting from the fact that banks have been recruited effectively by the government to pro provide a lot of support to people with home loans, business loans and whatever? So therefore, when people have projects that ordinarily they might have tried the banks, the banks said, no, they, they go to you. Are you getting a lot more deals put to you because the banks are saying to those sorts of uh, projects, they're not as important, they're not as crucial, and therefore they're looking at it Look, I don't know if it's more that it's not important to them. I just don't think they have the ability. There's two aspects of it. And I'll give you another example. Mm -hmm. We've, um, I like this major bank, so I don't want to go and bash the banks. Yeah. But if you go for a, just a normal residential home loan, mm -hmm with this particular major bank, just as a refinance, you'd have to wait 30 business days for them to pick up the file. So imagine if I went to you, Peter, look, thank you for your inquiry on a home loan. Not that we do that yeah. in the business, but you have to wait six weeks before I pick up the phone. Mm. And that is why, that is a major reason why we're getting the, com and then, well, that's yeah. a major reason why we're getting the deals, but then if you add the complexity of commercial, commercial aspect, that's, that's the point. Yeah. So are we seeing, investments um, that are bank-grade investments, absolutely. Mm. That, that is a benefit of to our business with COVID, to be honest. We're seeing great deals. Yeah. Well, I guess one last question. We saw that there's been an extension of JobKeeper. Um, you know, do you have any you know, borrowers from you, uh, you know, with you, who have their employees on JobKeeper um, in a transitional way and therefore, you know, you wouldn't have expected it when you struck the deal with them first of all, but... Look, we, in, during COVID, it was an interesting emotion when we looked at our, our book and we had an extensive analysis on yeah. our book and said, look, where, where would the risks be with non-payment of mortgages where mm. people would not be getting their rents? 
there was one particular borrower that had a few issues. Mm. Vulnerable. Um, vulnerable. They said, look, we think we're going to lose some of our tenancies. Mm. But because our book was weighted residentially, yeah. we weren't as affected as some of our competitors. In saying that, it actually recovered quicker mm. um, from analysing that particular, that particular investment. There was about a 20% decline in rental. That started paying within three months to full capacity again. Yeah. So we were lucky in that perspective. We, we were concerned initially because yeah. no one knew what the right. impact would be. Well, was it a suburban business that actually has done well because people are living at home? Because I think a, a lot of people in suburban businesses applied for JobKeeper on the basis that they thought they'd lose a lot of business and all of a sudden they're finding all the people who are working from home are going down to the local suburbs having coffee, having sandwiches, and they're actually doing better than they did before. Well, we had we had one particular client that has a, a pub in a suburban area. We yeah. didn't while well, we don't take pubs as security. That's the business that was underlying okay. the asset. And for three months he was worried. Mm. After three months, I rang him two weeks ago and said, "Look, how, how's everything going? You're making your repayments. Everything seems fine." Mm. He said, "Paul, we are twenty percent over." turnover and profit than we were ever in our 25-year history. Mm. And the reason being, people are staying home, they still want to go out, but they're not travelling to the city. So in that particular instance, it was a good news story for our business that yeah. we did back a good business. Um, the business is trading even better now in COVID than it was previously, so the yeah. underlying investment is strong. And I guess there's going to be a lot of businesses, uh, for example, I know there's a restaurant near us, uh, and the owner has never, ever delivered food to people's houses, did it for three months, now they're opened up again, why would they stop doing it? It's, it's an additional part of their business mm. that they never thought of before mm. and there are a hell of a lot of people who still would like to eat that kind of quality food in their own home. That's the benefit. Mm. That's, that's a great, great benefit. Threats often create opportunities, mm. don't they? Thanks very much for joining us, Paul. Paul Mealogis from M Square Capital.